Welcome to the Future Returns Business Podcast Series. My name is Catherine Matthews at Aruda Corporate Alliances, and you can tune in anytime to listen to the inspiring life stories and insights of thought leaders as we go deeper into the rich cultural and strategic matrix of doing global business. You can revisit the podcasts at the website, catherinematthews.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you for joining me. I have a right to be heard. I have a voice. That poignant quote taken from the movie The King's Speech is etched in Anthony Good's DNA. The King's Speech writer David Seidler, drawing on his own experiences, could also have been writing Sir Anthony Good's life story. Sir Anthony Good, also known as Anthony Good or Tony Good. As in the film, there is a cloak of leadership required in business and governance, the practice of managing public relations and relationship building, as well as embroidering the reputations between countries, strategies which Tony Good actualized. There are several themes of this award-winning film that mirrors Tony Good's empire building. Tony had a strict upbringing, which shaped his entrepreneurial spirit, delivering key milestones in the financial and travel industry, public relations and marketing arena. I was humbled to meet with Tony in Mumbai, and he shares his extensive experience and insights into global business. You'll be amazed at his involvement in some of the largest business houses in the UK and India, giving a precy of Indianization of the 1970s. It seems we've come full circle. Anthony Good has been the non-executive chairman of the travel company Cox and Kings Limited, also known as Cox and Kings India, and has held that position since 1975. Tony also has a voice on the UK India Business Council. I asked Tony about the importance of business relationships prior to a commercial transaction when it comes to doing business in India. Business is at least as much about people, in fact more about people, than it is about business. And I think one of the mistakes that many American companies make when they send their people abroad is they bring them back home too soon. Because, as you would know, in India it's the personal relationships that count above the business ones. So how have the relationships here in India accelerated the business that you're in? Well, I think they have, because meeting people, getting into their circuits, getting seen to be the person you are rather than merely a representative of of an organisation. I think one of the things that I've learned in India is that people are more important than companies. Americans tend to think, in my experience, that companies are more important than people. Tony, can I just ask, have you got your head around the issue of time? I'm not sure whether you've experienced it, but I know I have, that meetings can be perhaps organised at the last minute and often and more cases than not they are the best productive meetings it happens at last minute they're changed frequently but I'm finding that the whole issue of time is a different concept here in India as it is to perhaps the west I think it is and I think the two points are related because in India it's the individual rather than the organisation and 
time spent on developing the relationship between the individuals is valued more highly here than anywhere else in my experience. My very first trip to India, which, as I think you know, was a, a great many years ago, I was lucky enough to find myself sitting next to the then head of Citibank in India. He said, your first trip to India? And I said, yes. And he said, let, let me give you a few bits of advice. And his words are still ringing in my ear. He said, first of all, everything you've ever heard about India is absolutely true, and so is the exact opposite. Yes, there are many, many very poor people, but there are also a surprisingly large number of very rich people, and so on. He said, secondly, the answer, no problem, is the one you will most often get to any question in India. What the person you're talking to fails to point out is there's a full stop between the two words. The answer's no, and you have a big problem. Because in India, short-term politeness seems to count more than accurate information. I put this to the test not so long ago when I was came out of the hotel and I asked three people the directions to where I needed to go, which was make a chambers four. None of them actually knew, but they were not prepared to say that, so they gave me their best guess of where it was. Fortunately, I knew, and they were all wrong. So <laughs> the answer, no problem often means no and you have a problem. But the third, and I think probably the most important answer I got was, if you're doing business in India, it's essential to make sure that the person you're dealing with has the ability to make it happen. Because he said there's a version of the caste system, there's a sort of commercial caste system, and that means that the man you're talking to, the man you've been introduced to as representing such and such a company, he would lose face if he admitted to you not only that he does not have the ability to make it happen, but that neither he nor his boss see it as any part of his job to take things upwards. He is purely there to respond to what comes from above. And I've introduced a number of, uh, of companies to India, Marks & Spencer being one, Sun Life Insurance and Scottish and Newcastle Breweries. In each case, I introduce them to the man at the top. And it's interesting thinking of Marks & Spencer, so that the man I introduced them to was Mr Mukesh Ambani. He certainly is a decision maker, if not the only decision maker. <laughs> and it's interesting that Marks & Spencer's have abandoned all their overseas operations with the exception of India, which is doing extremely well. I think it is very important to understand the Indian caste system has become an Indian commercial caste system as well. That's excellent advice, Tony. The other thing that I'd like to, to ask you is that you've actually been involved in a number of UK's biggest takeovers and you're really a person who has gone very much under the radar. It's that quiet diplomacy which is to your credit, I think, in the sense that in the corporate world sometimes we don't have to beat our chest in order to make a point. But you've been involved in some of the largest takeovers in the UK. Are there one or two that you would like to perhaps describe to our listeners about what you've been involved in? And secondly, how did that take you on that journey to doing business here 
in India. In order to answer that question, I have to take you back a bit. I came out of the airline business and started a public relations company under the Good Relations name, which went on, much to my amazement, to become the only public relations company with a full stock exchange listing. And I was lucky enough that one of my first clients was Jensen Motors. Now Jensen were famous for the Jensen FF, the first four-wheel drive passenger car in the world. And when my client changed hands and the new owners wanted to sell, I found myself in the position of having to find an owner for my client. And the owner I found was Grindley's Bank, which was then the largest foreign bank operating in India. And Grindley's, much to my amazement, not only bought my client, put me onto the board of Jensen to represent the bank, but also brought me onto the board. I think I was very much an experiment. I was much younger than my fellow directors and the only non-banker. It brought me onto the board of a thing called Grindley's Commercial Holdings. And I think what was to prove a life-changing episode occurred when it was probably only about my fourth or fifth board meeting at the bank when the then chairman of Grindy's Commercial, a man called Frank Welsh, came in and said, gentlemen, I'm sorry I'm late, he was always on time normally, he said, I've been with Toby, that was Lord Aldington, who then chaired Grindley's. He's just back from India. He went, as you know, gentlemen, to see Mrs Gandhi to see whether the bank could escape the provisions of FIRA. Now, FIRA was definitely something to fear. It stood for the Foreign Exchange Regulation, Regulation Act, and that act could have been called the Licence Robbery Act, in my view, because what it said was that all foreign companies operating in India, and IBM and Coca-Cola both left in protest and stayed out for more than another 20 years, all uh, foreign companies operating in India had to either leave the country or go through a process which, as I said, might have equally have been called licence robbery, called Indianisation. That meant that they had to incorporate Indian business into an Indian registered company. They then had to transfer not less than 60%, which is clear control, of the shares in that company to local buyers, but most importantly, not on a freely negotiated basis. A government department called the CCI, the Controller of Capital Issues, which was set up to implement FIRA, quite arbitrarily decided what would be paid for the 60%, having no regard, one, to the fact that it's clear control, nor to the value of assets, the value of a trademark, the properties, and so forth. Grindley sent Lord Aldington to see Mrs Gandhi, And she said, Lord Aldington, if the bank is seen to do something about the development of tourism to India, about which the Congress Party, who I think thought they'd inherited India from the British and that a political party could be a family business, both of which they were wrong in my view, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, what Mrs Gandhi said to Lord Aldington was, if the bank is seen to do something about the development of tourism to India, then Grindley's will be excused from the provisions of FIRA. So he called a board meeting of the bank's South Asia board, South Asia being, as, as you know, effectively the Indian subcontinent. That meeting took place in what was then the Grindley's building, 
now the standard chartered building here in Bombay, as I still call it, and many of my friends do. That building had had an interesting history because it had started life as the Cox and Kings building when Cox and Kings was at least as big in banking as it was in anything else. And when Lloyds Bank bought the banking side of Cox and Kings, it became the Lloyds building. And when Grindley's bought Lloyds, Lloyds foreign business, it became the Grindley's building. So the board meeting is taking place. Lord Aldington tells the assembled group of his meeting with Mrs Gandhi and some bright spark round the table says, well, maybe we should buy the people upstairs then. Who were the people upstairs? Well, they were the relics of... Cox and Kings in the sense that the banking side had become part of Grindley's anyway. It was the non-banking side of the business. So he's saying, I'm happy to say, gentlemen, that as a result of my meeting with Mrs. Gandhi, we have now bought the rest of Cox and Kings because we had already bought the banking side from Lloyd's. So then he said, Tony, you're frowning. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't see the connection. And he said, well, isn't it obvious? And I said, well, not to me, because it's news to me that Cox and Kings is or ever was a tour operator. And he says, what's a tour operator? I won't insult your intelligence. So I explain, and he says, isn't that what they do? And I said, I don't think so, Frank. And he said, well, what do they do? And I said, well, I think you'll find that they are a shipping and forwarding agency with a small business travel division, which is what they were. And he said, you seem to know a lot about it. And I felt like saying, well, it's it's rather a pity none of you do. But anyway, this resulted in my company, Good Relations, being given by the bank a one-year contract to turn Cox & Kings in London into what the bank wanted it to be, which was a tour operator specialising in India. I say specialising because they said India. And I said, let me get this clear, you're asking me to set up a tour operating company with only one destination. And they said, yes. And I said, but... What about the political risks? And they said, Tony, I think you can safely leave the political risks to us. We have been in India since 1848, you know. Anyway, the result is we launched the programme. I I can see the brochure in front of me. It was seven nights at the Taj in Bombay, flights out and back Air India, one week, £191 all in. Only one problem. The launch exactly coincided with India and Pakistan going to war. So the bank then said, actually, Tony, perhaps you had a point. Maybe we need some other destinations. So what is now the Cox and King's Travel Limited in London is essentially what I set up in response to the bank. But the next thing that happened was that the bank were faced, having escaped Indianisation themselves, faced with the necessity to Indianise Cox and Kings. So they decided to send me out to find a partner for them. And by this time, Lord Aldington had been replaced by a man called Ritchie, and he called me in and said, please go and do this. He said, but you may wish to be aware that the bank's largest client in India, the name will come back to me in a minute, it doesn't really matter anyway, and you'll bear that in mind. And I said, of course. And I went to see this company and they spoke as though my visit was totally unnecessary, that it was a foregone conclusion that they would be given Cox and Kings. I 
stayed at the Taj and I got a call at two o'clock in the morning saying, I'm by the pool, come and talk to me if you know what's good for you. And I, in some trepidation I went down and this chap came out of the gloom and introduced himself and said, I understand Grindley's have sent you out to um, find a buyer for the 60% holding in Cox and Kings. If you will recommend my company, he said, handing over a card, there's $25,000 in a Swiss bank account for you. And I said, thank you, but that's not the way I do business. Now, if you don't mind, I need to get back to bed. The only one of all the people I saw who offered me no sort of threat or inducement was Ajit Kirka, who was then the general manager of the Taj in Bombay and had just been, I think, made managing director of the rather optimistically named Indian Hotels Company. I say optimistically named because the company was founded in 1912 uh, and it was not until 1976 that it had more than one hotel. Ajit Kirka, by the way, took them from one to 30-something five-star hotels around the world with a little bit of help from me, which is another story. Anyway, so I put in my recommendation and I'm called to see Mr Ritchie and he said, he's looking at my report and he says, Tony, uh, you were aware that whatever this company, it'll come back to me, uh, with, well, our largest customer. And I said, if you only wanted to give it to your largest customer, then there was not much point in sending me out to India to find a buyer. I thought you were looking for one that would be an appropriate partner in developing the business in India. And he said, fair point, I agree. So it was agreed that... Indian Hotels Company, the Taj Group, would take the 60%. But then another one of the weird provisions of that time said that none of the big houses, of which Tata was then the number one, could own more than, I think, 26%, yes, of any new business. So in the end, it was not just the Taj, but the Kirka family who became the Indian 60%. And that situation continued until Grindley's fell under the management control of Citibank and as a result fell foul of the Glass-Steagall Act. Now, the Glass-Steagall Act, you'll probably be familiar, was the Act of Congress passed in, I think, 1932 to prevent a recurrence of the Wall Street crash of 1928, whenever it was. And what it said was that none of the American banks or their partners or subsidiaries around the world could own any non-banking businesses. And that meant that Grindley's then had to sell all their non-banking businesses and Grindley's commercial holdings on which I sat was wound up. And so I and the Kirker family bought the company from Grindley's and under the family's management it's gone from three offices in India to last figure I got was 193 offices in India. Ursula Kirka, Ajit's daughter, has done the most amazing job of building up the Indian business and Peter, her younger brother, has done an equally amazing job of developing the UK business. To put that into context, the UK business when I came into it had a total number of staff of 27 and a, one of the banks came up with a list 
earlier this year of the largest largest Indian company companies employing in the UK and Cox and Kings they told me I didn't know now employ 2583 people in London as opposed to 27 when I came in speaking with Anthony Good, chairman of Cox and Kings, one of the longest serving travel companies in the world, which established in 1758. Tony was also the first to list a public relations company on the London Stock Exchange. The PR company Good Relations India became a subsidiary of Cox and Kings and the agency managed the public relations image around Tata Steel and the Taj Hotels. The smartest companies that connect with good business partners open up yet further avenues to growth and increase resilience. Business partnerships can scale, yet beyond the contract, there needs to be trust. Philip Christen in April 2017 published the book The Trust Economy with reference to trust in the digital age. I asked Tony about the importance of shared values, vision and that word trust between joint venture partners Cox and Kings and the Tata Group that commenced in the last century during the 1960s. I didn't realise that I was finding a partner for myself because I was finding a partner for the bank. Mm. And I knew that both the Taj Group as a Tata company and the Tatas were not only the largest commercial business in India at the time, but also regarded as the most ethical. And I was privileged to meet quite regularly, in fact, with J.R.D. Tata. In fact, one of my two very fond memories of him, one, I was at the Sea Lounge in the Taj in Bombay uh, to meet someone, and as I walked through the doorway, I remember the moment vividly, I heard this voice behind me saying, is that you, Tony? And I turned round and it was J.R.D. Tata sitting with a, a woman. And he said, are you looking for somebody? And I said, yes, I'm looking for whoever. And he said, and have you found him? And I said, no. He said, why don't you join my sister and me and have a, a cup of coffee oh while you're waiting? That was the man. And my other treasured memory of J.R.D. is a letter which I've got handwritten thanking me for a birthday card that I sent him. He was a really lovely man and I think that it was under his guidance more than any predecessor or or come to that, to be fair, I think any successor who created the Tata Group as being almost the commercial father of India. They really led the way uh, and I I was immensely privileged to be on first name terms with with JRD. Let's move forward to 2016 and you were reported to have said it will take more than a year for India to get itself sorted. Here we are in 2017. What have you seen in that last 12 months in terms of the progress or lack thereof in the industry that you're currently working in, but also the corporate world? I'm, I'm a great fan of, of, of the, the present Prime Minister for two reasons. One, as I said earlier, I, I, I feel that the Congress Party thought they'd inherited India from the British and that it was their personal fief. The fact that a man can progress from being a tea seller on a provincial railway station to being prime minister of the largest democracy in the world not only speaks volumes for him, 
but it does for India as well. I mean, we tend to forget that India is the largest democracy. Uh, I'm reminded of, of Winston Churchill's remark when somebody asked him in one of his drinking sessions in the evening in the House of Commons whether he didn't think there was a lot wrong with democracy as a system of government, and he said... Indeed there is, my dear fellow. He said, unfortunately, history has shown us that there's a great deal more wrong with any alternative system. He said, the ideal system of government is a benevolent dictatorship, but finding a benevolent dictator and keeping him benevolent has historically proved impossible. And if you look at look at Syria, if Winston Churchill was alive, he'd say, I told you so. We, the West, intervened in Syria's internal business. Uh, we changed the leader and the man we put in has killed more of his own countrymen let alone people from any other country than the man that we overthrew. So I I think going back to my view of Modi, I think that the the demonetization was very brave and I don't mean that in a condescending way, I think there were very good reasons for it, not the least which I hadn't realised but I happened to be here at the time the fact that Pakistan was apparently infiltrating vast numbers of forged banknotes into India to hasten the collapse of the economy as they saw it. So I think what he did was very well done. It was an almost impossible thing to do without there being uh, a backlash, but I think his timing, uh, roughly halfway through his period in office, was good. If, as the results in a couple of states have since proved, he's likely to be re-elected, I think that will be a first-rate thing. And another thing I like about him is that he's picked his team very well. He's got some very bright and capable people there. If anything indicates how India has been right to stick with democracy, unlike some of its neighbouring countries. Uh, I think it's that. I wish him well. Tony, you were involved in PR and you were a brand strategist. How would you brand India and what pitch words would you use to describe India if you had to sell India as a product or a service? Well, I do try to sell India because I believe that it is a fantastic place to to do business. I think that one of the reasons that it is is something I touched on earlier, that it's as much about contact between people as it is between organisations. I think in India people do business with other people who also happen to be presenting a company. The individual here is very important, and I've been fortunate enough to develop a lot of personal relationships here, which I value, and I'd like to feel that they do, and the Kirker family being the obvious example. I think India's a great brand. Mm. I think it's a saleable brand, and I do my best to sell it when I'm travelling. I'm proud of being clearly a working democracy, Long may it last. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a period of Indianisation where we saw IBM and Coca-Cola leave the country. Of late, there seems to be a sentiment where we're almost going back to a period where globalisation is being rejected. How is that going to impact on the corporate world, but certainly 
is that going to impact on the products that you are currently providing in the travel industry? Are people tending to travel more locally as opposed to going to countries that you previously offered many, many years ago? Two separate issues there, I think, taking the second one first. What we've seen here, and this has all taken place really in the last five years, We were almost entirely handling inbound business. We did domestic business here and we did commercial business, looking after the travel needs of commercial clients. What's emerged is a young, reasonably affluent, travel-hungry group of people who were filling a need for them not only to discover the world but to discover their own country. Now, this coincided with... Air India being the last commercial carrier to pay commission to retail travel agents and that resulted in a very large number, large, largely mommer and popper stores, ending up without any income. So what we did was to create a franchise model and indeed the largest proportion of our growth here on the ground has been through franchises. We create franchises in much the same way as international franchises, i.e. we find a franchisee, we we do the premises up, we have had lots of choice of premises so we've been able to get prime sites in all the relevant cities and towns. The only difference is with us, the, the money comes to us and the finance guy in each of the operations is employee of ours. I, I, this is a more appropriate model than the conventional franchise model where the, franchise, the money goes to the franchisees and then he pays over the bulk of it to the franchisor. So that's one aspect. And I think that the need or the desire certainly for this young English-speaking, relatively affluent group of people. It's a win-win. We are providing a product that they need. The franchisee has got his business back effectively. Now, the future of travel is very hard to judge. And that's why these operations are franchises, because so much of travel is is moving online. And indeed, a lot of our business, we've got a a very sizable online business here too. Predicting the future has never been easy, but I think that our model at the moment is right for the marketplace. And looking at the marketplace itself, I think that India is finding its place in the world. I mean, if you look, we go back to Tata, for example, I would question, with with the, the benefit of hindsight, but hindsight, as we both know, is 2020 vision, I, I would question the wisdom looking backwards of buying British steel, because steel is, in fact, a commodity, and an affluent nation is not able very often to provide basic products in competition with less well-developed economies. However, if you look at Jaguar Land Rover, which had become part of a much larger group who were not really able to develop individual brands, Ford we're talking about, of course, I think that Tata have been extremely good for Jaguar Land Rover. I think they've taken it forward in a way that it never would have come, would have gone otherwise. I was privileged to meet on my last trip, which was, what, the week before last, I think, to meet Mr Chandrasekhar and the new head of Tata. 
and I think he's an enlightened choice because he's come up through um, TCS, which is probably the most successful of the Tata companies, and I think he's clearly a visionary and will take take Tata forward, and I think Tata has become a world brand. So I do think that India is now taking its rightful place in the world economy. It's got a very large number of young, well-educated, English-speaking, bright people, and I, I wish India well, and I think that although there are problems associated with a democracy, because, as Winston Churchill said, there's a lot wrong with democracy, but a lot wrong with, with any alternative system. We have to watch what the Chinese are doing, in particular in terms of population control. We could say that about India, that you know, the population growth is growing exponentially. That could be the same for India. It is indeed. Sorry, I, I, I didn't make myself clear. What I was saying was China is dealing with its population expansion in a way that a democracy cannot. People are not going to vote for being prevented from having children, for example. But uh, my informants tell me that the Chinese one-child solution has been replaced because the problem of the one-child solution was that only male children were being born, and if you extrapolate from that, you find that eventually the country ceased to exist. So China could have gone from being vastly overpopulated to being totally underpopulated. And I think that, it, it, I gather, quite a complicated situation has replaced it, but this will probably result in people being born who will have jobs rather than people being born who will not have jobs. And that's the danger here. You mentioned a few things in your previous comments, Tony, and I have to ask you this because it seems to be part and parcel of doing business here in India. And you were talking about the fact that sometimes we just can't read the future. What has been your experience and exposure to where perhaps astrology has been used to assist the decision-making of the corporate world here in India? Well, I I have mixed views about astrology. Uh, Like any other um, quasi-science, I think is probably a fair fair term for it, there are those who believe uh, and believe they have evidence to believe and there are others riding on a roundabout, if you like. One of the problems in India has been that before mass education came in, things were passed from generation to generation as truths. I don't want to get across into the broader religious field, but uh, field. But I think throughout history there has been exploitation of people, whether through politics or through religion, it's been all about control. And I think there's a certain amount of of that in, in what we're talking about as well. Unfortunately, politics and religion have, as I said, been, in my view, very much about controlling people. And I think that probably is the same in that area too. Talking about control, and I want to touch on this because I think this probably will give listeners an insight into your leadership and the person who you've become today and that is the issue of control and I want to ask you and take you back to your childhood 
And there was one particular year which stood out for you, the last year of your schooling. Could you please just briefly explain to us why that last year of your education was the pivotal point in your life? Yes, I had a form, I had a form master, Mr Ashby, who I think was a very enlightened person. And because, as I explained to you in an earlier conversation, I was not going to university, he said to me, I've got a deal for you. And I said, what's that? And he said... If you like, and if A-levels are not uh, of real significance to you, you can spend the next school year in the school library, subject to two conditions only. One, that you read only non-fiction, and two, that you write an essay on every book you, you read to indicate what you've learned from it. If somebody had tried to force them on me, I would have resisted very strongly. I'm still drawing at my present advanced age. I'm still drawing on what I learned in that year. I studied politics as a result of which I did not live up to my father's expectations. Uh, I remember him when I was probably about 12, saying to me, my boy, it's time that I talk to you about two things, one's women and the other's politics. And I thought this was going to be my sex education, but I was quite wrong, because he said, first of all, as for women, all you need to know, my boy, is it's a woman's world, and it's a wise man who recognises the fact early in life and orders his life accordingly. And he said, secondly, to politics, he said, anyone who is not a socialist when they're 18 has no heart. Anyone who is still one when they're 30 has no brain. (laughs) That's all you need to know about politics. Well, I would have disappointed him because at the age of 18, I was a young conservative. And the reason was that I'd read during that year a lot about politics and what that reading had taught me was that socialism and communism have never worked anywhere in the world other than for relatively short periods because they're based on a false assessment of human nature which is that people are as much concerned in the welfare of their fellow men as they are for themselves and their families. So I think that was an amazing year because I emerged having read a lot about commerce, even read the Companies Act, which had a benefit many years later when I was called in by the chairman of a company in which I had shareholding of just over 3%, 3% being a declarable level, which goes into the annual report, as you would know. And he called me in to say, Tony... I see you've got this percentage. He said, I've been building up a holding. And he said, I've called in one of the big investment banks and we're planning to make a bid. And I said, what percentage have you got? And he said, 8%. Uh, I said, he said, I and some colleagues. So I said, and you're going to bid? And he said, yes. And I said, but... um, your investment bank will have told you about Section 168 of the Companies Act. And he said, what? And I said, well, under that section, it's changed in later, the numbers change, but basically the principle's the same. Holders of 
more than 10% of the equity in a public company can, if they believe it's not being properly managed, call an extraordinary general meeting, which they can put a proposal for the board to be removed and to replace it with a board of their choosing. He said, the bank didn't tell me that. I said, well, they wouldn't, would they? Because all that's going to cost you is a letter and some postage stamps, whereas making a bid is going to bring them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds. So, as I say, even comparatively recently, I've still been drawing on what I learned there. It was an immensely valuable year, and if there was, in fact, such a thing as a university degree uh, for reading a lot of books, I might have got one. (laughs) Tony Good is my guest. It doesn't take long to sense that Tony is methodical and possesses a great deal of business wisdom, hallmarks akin to being a good leader in business. Tony's resilience in business grew from adversity. I asked Tony to share his experience of growing up and the sensitive issues of intimidation and bullying. I think I was both lucky and unlucky. I was an only child. My father was... uh, nearly 60 when I was born, so he was at least one extra generation ahead of me, and his policy was that children should speak only when they're spoken to. I learned a lot from him, but I had an appalling stammer. My mother was a Christian scientist and didn't believe in doctors, and so when I went to boarding school, I remember the school sergeant weighing me naked, not him, I mean, but me, uh, (laughs) and saying, well, boy, you've made the only, uh, only record you're likely to make in this school. And I said, what's that? And he said, you're the only boy I've ever had whose height and weight are the same. You can work it out. Uh, I was known as Belson Boy. And I had a very unhappy um, first four years of my school day because my father deliberately chosen a very sporting school for a very non-sporting child. But as I say, the, the, the first few years were made up for by my year in the sixth, which I'm still drawing on. So I think what it did was to lower my expectations of adult life. And one of the concerns that I have in the West, certainly, I I don't think the problem is as great here, but I think that we are creating in the West a generation of young people whose expectations of life are too high. My expectations of life were actually very low, and... Adult life has been an absolute doddle after five years at a, a at a very sporting boarding school. The sport, your father was involved in race horses yes. and he sent you to a very sporting boarding school. Mm-hmm. Can you just also recount the story about having to swim in some very, very cold conditions while you're at boarding school? Because this, I think, would sort of paint a picture of the sort of trauma that, and I say, and I use the word trauma because it was quite sad to think that the way that students were treated is an example of what was called, you know, leadership even back then. Like all systems, it has its pluses and its minuses. The minuses were uh, hit me quite hard at the time, but the pluses I probably gained for from in later life. If you were not able to swim in the house list, you had NS after your name, which says non-swimmer. And that meant that you had to go every day, winter or summer, to the unheated pool 
You weren't allowed to wear trunks, by the way. You couldn't wear swimming trunks unless it was an open day when parents came. So you were naked? Yes, naked. The side of the pool was concrete, and what the school sergeant did was to splash cold water over the side. You then lay on your front and were pushed or pushed yourself in, and this was part of the process of learning to swim because the alternative was drowning. And it, it was tough. We had mid-morning PT, even in snowstorms. You, you wore shorts and a, and a, and a vest. Uh, sometimes it was very cold. On rare occasions it was quite hot. It was tough. You had house runs, and the house runs were accompanied by a prefect with a stick on a bicycle. And I remember having a brief discussion about why he was hitting me on the back as I was running and the answer I got was because you're last and I said but somebody has to be last he said well it doesn't bloody well have to be you all the time so there were benefits to this yes I was very unhappy and I think that conditions in modern prisons certainly in the UK, are probably considerably better uh, than they were at my school. And indeed, that's borne out by the fact that I was... I don't normally get into conversation with people on the tube, but uh, I was travelling on the tube not so long ago, last year, I think, uh, and the chap, well-dressed chap in the next seat said, where are you going? And I said, Westminster. And he said, so am I. And I said, oh, really? Fine. So he said... I'm going to meet a group of MPs. And I said, ah, how interesting. What are you going to talk to them about? He said, prison. I said, do you know a lot about prison? He said, well, I should. I've just come out. And for a well-dressed, he looked like a quite successful businessman. That was quite surprising. And I said, well, what was it like? He said, it was like a one- or two-star hotel. He said three hot meals a day and sky television and warm surroundings. He said, what I want to tell the MPs is that a number of the people I was in prison with were planning how to get back in again because the conditions at their level in society were better in prison than they were outside. He said, and I think it's a very sad thing that we've created a situation where people could possibly want to go back to prison. I suspect that if we outsourced our prison business to Indian prisons that might cease to be the case but that's a different subject. I don't really want to end on that note but going back to your point about you should never assume a person's character or their position by the way that they look and I'm finding that more and more that just the people that you meet in the lift or at a coffee shop doesn't necessarily explain or describe their position in society. Would you say that would be the case too here in India where there seems to be quite a number of folk who congregate in the same sort of club or area but we should never assume who those people are because they could be, you know, India's next billionaire. India as a society is still evolving Mm. because in the time that I've been coming here a young and relatively affluent well-educated middle class has emerged which when I first came here didn't exist. You had the very rich and the poor or very poor. 
And I admire what's happened here, but I think, you know, one thing that life teaches you is that you should not judge people by their appearances. And that's one reason why I think the Indian policy of doing business with people that they know and like, rather than people whose business card says they are of some importance in a, in a relatively important business, is very important. And the only way to judge people is to, to, to get to know them. And here I think the system works much better. Tony Good, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so, so much for your time. And I know this must be over the 400 trip that you've... 410th visit to India and I hope there are many, many more. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Very kind. Thank you very much.